Hey guys, this is Naeem and you've reached the Mosaic Church Podcast. So excited that you're part of our listening community and I'd love for you to be even more connected. So check out our website. There's more content there and there's more opportunities for you to get connected in our ministries and events as well. Also, love for you to share this content. If this is blessed to you, I know that God wants to use you to bless other people with it. So share this podcast, if you will. Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you and enjoy. Good morning, Mosaic. Good morning to the rowdy crowd. And good morning to the rest of you. So glad that you guys are here. My name is Kristen. I am one of the pastors here at Mosaic. And we are in the middle of a series called How Can I Believe? So last week, Pastor Naeem talked about heaven and hell. We have also talked in this series about is God good and is Jesus the only way? Pastors Naeem and Ashley are actually out of town this weekend. Her father passed away a few months ago, and they were just able to have the memorial service for him. So they are with family today. They send their love, and they thank you for your prayers and support. Today, we're going to talk about something that you might have questions about, you might have doubts about, you might have feelings about, you might want to stand up and defend it, or you might be like, nope, thanks, I'm good, I'm so confused, I've already given up on this. What we're going to talk about today is the Bible. We're going to talk about the Bible. Is the Bible clear? Is the Bible relevant? Is the Bible true? Is the Bible trustworthy? Well, unfortunately, this is not a series for answers. <laughs> so I'm not going to answer any of those questions for you today. But hopefully, by the end of this conversation, you will be able to think and dig in for yourself. You will be able to see the Bible in a new way. And I really hope you do, because I think that for some of you, God wants to speak to you, but what he wants to say to you is in his word. Now, I know in my own life, there have been times that have been really hard, and some of you right now maybe in a situation where you are lonely or you feel alone. Maybe you're looking for answers, you're looking for direction, you're looking for guidance or wisdom. I am all for therapy. Yay for therapists, they can help us process things, right? I have great friends who can speak into my life and encourage me and support me. But I'm going to tell you what, there have been times in my life where this was the only place I could find any clarity. There is supernatural power in these words. And friends, I think some of you are missing it because you're not in your Bible. There is something that maybe God wants to say to you that no one else can. He wants to say it to you in a way that nothing else can, but could you be missing it because it's here? I have found comfort here. I have processed hard things here. I have faced deep wounds that I wouldn't even talk to my therapist about here because God showed up and spoke to me here. Now, I want to be clear that it might not always be clear what God is trying to say to us, right? How many of you know that's true? You've read a Bible verse and you're like, well, that wasn't helpful at all. Actually, thank you very much. But if we don't look, then we won't hear anything. Today is going to be a little bit maybe like a seminary class. It might be more of a teaching than a preaching. 
Somebody once told me that she wished she could listen to me on half speed. <laughs> so today might be one of those where you need to go back and listen again and slow me down because basically what I'm going to do today is take the last few years of my own research, my own digging in, my own wrestling with scripture. And I'm going to try to condense it into 30-ish minutes of like Bible highlights for you. Now, if there is anything that you have questions on that you want to know more about, please reach out to me. I have all kinds of resources on people that have devoted their lives to better understanding scriptures, books, and podcasts, people that can go deeper and explain it better than we have time for today. But if you only take away one thing today, what I want you to know is this. I want you to stop thinking about your Bible like this. Stop thinking about your Bible like this and start thinking about your Bible like this. The Bible is actually a library. The Bible is a collection of works that were inspired by God, written down by human authors. It is a collection of works, many different genres. There are historical, real, um, historical retellings that are accounts of real people that lived in history. There are genealogies that explain how these people were connected across generations. There are books of law that recorded the laws for specific people groups or specific religions at the time. There are wisdom and poetry pieces like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. There are prophetic works that foretold the future. God would give messages to prophets and then they would prophesy and relay God's message to the people. That's in here too. There are stories that are full of metaphors, analogies, examples, and parallels. And it doesn't mean that they're not true, but they are stories. There are gospels, four books that actually recount Jesus's life here on earth. And there are epistles, which are letters written to churches by biblical authors to give them encouragement or correction, maybe instruction on what their next steps are. See, there are expectations and organizing principles for each different type of genre. And if we know what it is, we can use those to help us figure out how to read it. But if we don't know, we can be blind to the most important aspects of what we're reading. If we don't acknowledge what we're reading, we won't know how to read it. So think of it like this. You go to the library. Would you go to a science fiction section, grab a science fiction novel, and read it like historical biography? No, right? It might explain why people, some people did what they did if there were aliens involved, but we know we're not going to do that. You would not grab a true crime book and read it like a textbook or an instruction manual. Hello? Okay? You're not going to grab a romance novel and read it like a self-help book. Don't do that. Don't do that. When we don't acknowledge what we're reading, we don't know how to read it. And if we don't know how to read it, we don't know how to apply it in our lives. See, what has happened is that all of these writings, all of this collection was put together. It was put together in a book, and it was called the Bible. Actually, that's not even true. Depending on your denomination, the Bible is different. We call that the Christian Bible. If you were to ask a Catholic monk, a Catholic monk an Orthodox priest, an evangelical pastor, and a Reformed rabbi, how many books were in the Bible, you would get four different answers. 
because Jews only acknowledge some and Catholics have added a few more that no one else recognizes as canonized scripture. So, is it 81, 73, 66, 24? Or, if you ask Thomas Jefferson, is it only 84 pages? Yes, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, decided he was going to make his own Bible. He got six Bibles in French, English, Greek, and Latin, and cut them up with a pair of scissors and a glue stick. He cut out all the pieces that he liked, he left out all of the pieces that he didn't like, and he slapped together his own Bible in 84 pages that y'all can get on Amazon for $4.99. I decided we did not need that as part of our library collection this morning. But this all leads to my first point, which is that the Bible is complex. It is so complex. We want it to be simple. We want it to be a storybook that entertains us or an instruction manual that tells us what to do. We want it to be like a philosophical guidebook that tells us morally how to live. I think some of you use it like a magic eight ball. You're like, dear God, should I date him? Dear God, tell me if I should move there. We do this. You're laughing because you know this is true. You've all done this. I've done this. It is a library. It is complex. We have to understand that there are so many genres. There is a depth. The depth of human experience is found in this library. And if we know anything about life, we know that it is complex. It is complicated. Some people want to say, no, the Bible is clear. It is straightforward. It is the Bible. And there are verses about scripture. 2 Timothy 3 says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Yes, absolutely. Inspired by God, he's going to use it to prepare and equip people. Side note. 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, and anybody know? <laughs> Biblical knowledge time. Anybody know when that letter was written? 65 AD. 65 AD is when that letter was written. This book, when do you think this book was put together? Again, across denominations, there are different answers. People can't even agree on when the first Bible was put together. But the first recognized compilation of the New Testament where this letter would have been was put together by a bishop in 637 CE. And in case you're like, that means nothing to me. I don't know about these letters with years. That is centuries later. Centuries after Paul wrote this, it was actually put together. So the question is, when Paul says all scripture, what was he even talking about? He couldn't have been talking about this if this did not exist. We already have a complexity. So if we acknowledge the type, we know what it is, then we can just pick it up and read it and it's clear, right? Yes and no. <laughs> Let me show you. In the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus, we see this verse during his baptism. It says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This is a verse that we can take at face value. 
right? Jesus is the son of God. We have built our faith on this truth. But in Acts, it says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is the son of God, yes. Jesus is a stone. Like, like Jesus is a rock? Like, not like Jesus rocks, but like Jesus is a rock? No. We understand that that's not what this means. Why? Because we get context. We get subtext. We understand that we have to read certain things differently. But you can see how paralleling these two things next to each other can make it confusing for someone who tries to open up and read this book front to back the same way all the way through. So let's talk about Bible translations. That explains a little bit why we have differences sometimes between passages. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Greek, and sometimes Aramaic, and then people translated it across time and culture to better um, help people to understand these ancient texts. Now, the translation process generally is for the written word. And generally, it goes word by word to go from one language into a second language. This is for very, very smart people who require a deep knowledge of linguistics, of cultural understanding, the why things were how they were, even an expert level understanding of the content matter, the things that was being talked about, the subject. Now, there are people that would believe We have too many translations, no more translations. Every time the Bible is translated, it takes away from the original word of God. There's no more room on the shelf. We're just watering it down. But the cool thing about Bible translations is that this is how we get the word of God out into the world. It has already been translated into over 700 languages, which is amazing. Until you realize that there are over 7,000 languages in the world. So our Bible translations are not yet sufficient if this really is the good news that we want the world to know. And that's just standard languages that we think about. After 39 years, ASL, the American Sign Language, finally has their own Bible. They have their own Bible. And we can have a whole conversation about why they can't read this one because they can, but it's different. It's different to be able to have body language and facial gestures and all of these things that they rely on for context. And even that Bible is only ASL. There are other dialects of sign language that won't apply when they read that. It is important that we have multiple translations of the Bible. There's many of you in here that speak multiple languages, and so you know, you know that there's not always a word to translate from one into your heart language. There's not always a word that you can just take from here and have it be in your second, in the original language. So I talked to Sean about this. Sean is our worship arts director, and he is Ecuadorian and Bolivian, and his first language is Spanish. And his parents speak Spanish, and his family speaks Spanish. So when he talks to them, he speaks Spanish. So if Sean wants to text his mom, he has to take this into consideration. And I asked him about this, and he said that brunch was one of these words. If he wants to text his mom and invite her to brunch, there is no Spanish word for brunch. So he has a couple of options. Number one, he can just drop English, drop the original language, smack in the middle of his sentence. Number two, he can make up a new word. Like he can just make something up. 
Or number three, he can substitute it for a different but kind of similar word to get the general idea across. Now, before you say this is not a big deal, you know there is a difference between lunch and brunch, okay? The essence of lunch is sandwiches, it's sustenance. It's like, I have to eat because I gotta go on with my day and I need more energy. Brunch is special, it's mimosas, it's fun. There is a difference and words mean things. This makes the Bible more complex. You wanna go to brunch, you don't really care about lunch. Do you know what I'm saying? The words have context and subtext. There is nuance. We bring knowledge. We bring experience. We bring feeling into the text when we read. And that takes me to our second point, which is that interpretation is inevitable. It is going to happen. Now, where translation generally applies to the written word, it is it's a longer process. It allows the translator to use resources, dictionaries, thesauruses, reference materials, things that help them get into the original language and dig in and study and take their time to go from one to the next. But interpretation happens on the fly. Interpretation generally happens conceptually because there's not time to go word by word when you are interpreting something from one person to another person. It's often giving the main idea and it depends on the context and the audience. If you think about, if you were gonna explain to someone what was happening in the world today, war, all the things that are going on, you can talk to your colleagues about it and then you can talk to your kids about it. You're going to interpret, you're going to explain that in two very different ways. If you're interpreting something in a professional setting, you're gonna be very professional about it. If you are hanging out with your friends and you're gonna interpret the same concept to them, you're going to be casual. It's going to be different because interpretation often depends on the audience. Interpreters often even remove or add idioms, slang, cultural specific references based on who it is they're talking to. When you read the Bible, you are interpreting. You bring yourself with you. You bring your experiences, your knowledge, your emotions, your personality, your culture, your biases, and it is okay. This is how our brains work. Interpretation by definition is just bringing meaning to something. And we do this partly because we don't like not knowing. We don't like being in the middle. We don't like unknowns. So our brains fill in the gaps for us to make us feel better. Also, it helps us to have meaning. It helps us to get from point A to point B, to go from here to there. In the book called Eat This Book, Eugene Peterson, who is a scholar and a theologian, he is credited with the message version of the Bible, he says that everything we have is interpretation. Everything we have is interpretation. And I believe this. We interpret all day long. When you're driving down the road and you see a car accident and you're like, oh, I bet they were texting and driving. Interpretation. You're putting meaning to something that you don't know. When somebody doesn't text you back, but their red receipts are on and you know that they saw your text, and then you start going, oh, I offended him. She's mad at me. I guess I shouldn't have said that. I wonder if she should have said so-and-so. Interpretation. 
when you are in a conversation with someone and they say, I saw it on the news. Major interpretation. <laughs> Major interpretation. And it's going to depend on what channel and what lens it came through. That event is going to be interpreted two different ways. We interpret all day long, and biblical translators did this. They were human people. They did this too. They brought themselves, their worldview, their time, their place, their philosophy, their language, their male-dominated societies that dictated not only how they behaved, but also how they spoke and how they wrote and what language they used. They brought it all with them. And it's not bad. We need to acknowledge that we're doing it, but it's not bad. Even Jesus did this. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus talking to people. Maybe it's in, in response to a question someone has asked him. And he will say, you've heard it said. And then he will reference something that those people know. Maybe something from the Torah. Maybe something that was um, passed down orally. But something that they're very aware of. And then what would he say after that? But I say. But I say. So he is saying, here's what you've always heard and thought and believed. But now I'm going to interpret this for you in this moment, in this time, to this audience. And I wonder if just maybe Jesus was modeling for us a way to honor and revere and respect what is true, but also say, hey, you can dig in here. You can ask questions. You can wrestle and you can find new meaning and see how it applies in the here and now. There's a concept that you may have heard of called turning the gem and it came from um, old Jew Jewish rabbis who basically said, this is the way to study scripture. This is the way to study scripture. It's a gem. And so basically the idea is that if God's word comes through one of these faces, it refracts out here. Well, then you turn it, and then guess what? It ref refracts out a different way. Every way you look through it, you see something different. They had another phrase actually called the 70 faces of the Torah. The Torah was just the first five books of the Old Testament. Just five books. They believed that there were 70 faces of just that section because that's how much they believed there were levels of meaning. And that's how they think that we are meant to study Scripture. And friends, this is a good thing. This is what makes the Bible different from other religious texts. This is what makes the Bible different. It's why people call it the living word of God. See, other, in other religions, translations are forbidden. They're forbidden. In Islam, for a long time, the Quran was only in Arabic. It was forbidden for it to be translated to another language because there was a fear that if they translated it, it would lose its meaning. Their religion was so based on that one um, context, that sentence structure, the way that it was, because they believed that it was written from heaven. It was like written to Muhammad from heaven, and there was no changing it. There was no room for interpretation or translation or bringing of yourself. The Bible, by the way, has never made that claim. The Bible has never made the claim that it was written by God in heaven and then handed down to us. It was inspired by God to human authors. And, and with Jesus, Jesus talks to us about a God where we can bring ourselves. 
where he can talk to us through more than just word structure. He talked to us about a God who wants to speak to us in our humanity. He wants us to bring ourselves fully to the text so he can speak to us there. Mark 12:30, Jesus tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So he is not going to expect you to put all of that aside when it's time to come to scripture. Bring it with you. It's through these things that he speaks to you. It's through these things that this scripture and these words become personal. And it's a personal connection between you and God. He says all of these things, your feelings, your thoughts, your curiosity, your personality, this is where the Holy Spirit moves in and can speak to you. Have you ever read a verse? Maybe you've read it a hundred times. You've known it for years. And then one day you read it and it moves your soul in a way that never has before. This is what I'm talking about. You can read something one day and get meaning out of it. You can read something the next day, the next year, and it means something different to you. That's how this scripture is different. God speaks through it. Now, interpretation can go wrong. It can go wrong. Where Jews use scripture to start conversation Christians often use scripture to end it. Think about this. <laughs> I will say that again. Where Jews use scripture to start conversation, Christians often use scripture to end it. If you have been in a conversation with someone and they say, well, it's in the Bible, or because the Bible says so, okay, well, that's pretty definitive. That sounds like an answer. That leaves no room for additional meaning or curiosity. Also, what it does is it makes the Bible a weapon to divide us instead of a tool to unite us. This was never meant to be a weapon to divide us. We sh it should be uniting all of us in Christ. And let me be clear with the Christians real quick. If you don't consider yourself a believer, you can just chill for just one second. But if you consider yourself a Christian, let me tell you this. When you cherry pick scriptures and you throw them at other believers like Bible bombs, you just might be falling prey to the enemy's tactic to get you right in the core of what you're saying you build the foundation of your belief upon. Check that, okay? Let's not do that. This was never meant to be a weapon to divide us. It is meant to be a tool to unite us. Now, have you heard people talk about verses being taken out of context? You've heard that phrase probably, right? What does that mean? Basically what it means is people take words or a phrase and they lift it up off the page outside of any original context or meaning. So how do you know if you're doing this? Because we don't want to do this, right? How do you know if it's happening? Well, first ask yourself if you're using the Bible as a tool to unite or a weapon to divide. Ask the Holy Spirit to come in and help you to understand what you need to know in that moment. And then there are some questions that you can ask yourself while you're reading. What type of writing is it? What does it say right before and right after? What was the original language it was written in? Who was it written to and when? What was happening at that time? Culturally, what were the norms, events, or even other religious practices that were happening alongside of Christianity that this could be addressing? And the big one, what am I looking for? 
What am I looking for when I open this book? Because I'm going to tell you what, whatever you're looking for, you're going to find it. Confirmation bias applies here too. This is how the, people can use the same Bible to justify opposing political parties. People can use the same Bible, the same words, the same phrases to oppose, to, to, to justify opposing lifestyles, opposing moral views. It shouldn't make sense that way, but it does. You can bend scripture to mean almost anything that you want it to say, or you can bend it until it breaks. Are you looking through the face of love and freedom, or are you reading it through manipulation and power? Okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna give you an example. And after last service, somebody was like, I cannot believe that's the example that you used. <laughs> like, listen, if we're gonna talk about scripture, then I'm gonna talk about some scripture that I'm familiar with. So I'm a, I'm a female, in case you did not know that. I am also a pastor, a preacher, a teacher. Here I am, and so here's a verse that I get to um, respond to quite often. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over any man. She must be quiet. Now, a lot of people and a lot of denominations have built systems of ministry, systems of leadership on the interpretation of these verses. Or I would say, rather on the lack of interpretation of these verses because they were just lifted up off a page and then used as the foundation for these systems. So, let's ask some of these questions. What type of writing is this? This is a letter. This was a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy at the church in Ephesus. Right there, can you imagine sending a text to a friend, a correspondence, if you will, and then finding out later that your text your correspondence to a friend was given authority for all people for all time. Now, I am not saying that Paul's letters were not inspired, but what I am saying is that if God tells me something and I know it's going to have that kind of power, I'm going to be a lot more careful with my words than if I'm just shooting off a text to my bestie. Right? Again, context, audience. So this is what we're looking at. I'm just wondering if maybe Paul didn't know that that's what was going to happen to this letter to his buddy. All right, so Paul is Greco-Roman. This is the culture that he's coming out of. And so his writing style would have reflected that culture. The Greco-Roman Greco culture relied heavily on persuasion, figures of speech, and rhetoric. I was like, I think I know what that means, but let me look it up. I'll help you out. Rhetoric is language designed to have a persuasive or impressive effect on its specific audience, but is often regarded as lacking in sincerity or meaningful content. So, between the combination of his writing style and the fact that he was trying to persuade this particular audience to do something, maybe he didn't intend for these words to be lifted and used literally. What if we look at the original language? Let's look at the words that Paul actually used. In these verses, Paul says, a woman. But right before and right after, he's talking to women and men in the plural. So why the change? Why the change from the plurality to a singular and then back to the plurality again? Could it be 
that in this instance, Paul was talking to, like it says, a woman? Could it be that as he's addressing this specific audience, this specific church, there was one woman who was misbehaving? Maybe she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do, whatever that was, and he's calling her out in like the most loving way. And he didn't need to name her because everybody knew who she was. You know what I'm saying? You've been in a group, all the leader, all the person has to say is somebody, and y'all are like, oh, we all know who somebody is. Could be that's what Paul was saying here. Subtext, right? Now, the Greek word for learn is mantheneo, which is the same root word that we also get the word disciple from. So when he says this, when he says for women to learn, it's not like, oh, you're so cute, go get some information on that. No, he, he's talking about learn. Like, this is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in Luke 10, among the other men who are learning and studying to become rabbis themselves. He's saying, these women are learning. If we step back and look at Paul's writing as a collective, as a whole, he wrote most of the Bible. Most of the Bible? I don't know. He wrote a lot of the Bible. <laughs> he wrote a lot of the Bible. And so if we look at this letter compared to another one, we can get a greater context of his belief and how he lived. So let's do that. Let's look at Romans 16. In this letter, Paul names, I'm sorry, just in this chapter, which there were not chapters and verses in the Bible for a real long time, by the way. But just in this chapter, Paul names 26 people, and a third of them are women. You want to hear some? I'm going to tell you anyway. Let's go, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church at Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many, and especially to me. Phoebe is the first person that Paul brings up, the first one. And he calls her a sister. Now, Phoebe carried Paul's letter to this church. What that meant at the time, it was known, it's not spelled out, but it was known if you research, the letter carrier is trusted with the message. And when the letter carrier gets there, they're going to be the ones that answers questions. So Phoebe, when she takes the letter, is going to probably read it and or teach it to the church. Paul calls her worthy of honor, says help her with whatever she needs. She has helped so many people, including myself. It's almost like she was his number two, like she was his sidekick, like she was the one that he trusted more than anybody else to represent him and to take his message if he couldn't be there. Also, Phoebe was a what? A deacon. The Greek word for deacon, diakonos, can also be translated to minister. Deacon, minister, pastor, you call it whatever you want to call it. Phoebe had leadership and authority over this church. Verse 3, give my, my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful for them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple, and it sounds like they're church planters. Right? They've started a church in their home. So they're going to pastor their people, care for their people, teach their people. Priscilla and Aquila are listed six times in Scripture. And every single time they're mentioned within the context of ministry, Priscilla's name is listed first. This was very out of the norm 
for the time. The man's name was always listed first. So this subtext tells us something. She was the more influential leader. She was the one that Paul looked to as leading the way. She had more status. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Junia is one of the most interesting people to me in the entire Bible. Junia held a position so out of the norm that for years in scripture, her name was translated to Junius. Why? Because that's a male name. Because biblical commentators could not grasp that a female held this position that was really only held by men. She was an apostle. In fact, she was the only female named an apostle in the New Testament. And in case you're like, what's an apostle? Well, Jesus had 12 of them. An apostle. She was like a disciple in this time. She would have had to do some learning and some speaking to have this kind of authority. Verse 12, give my greetings to Trophina and Trophosa, the Lord's workers, and to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Trophina, Trophosa, Persis. Paul uses the same language to describe their ministry that he uses for his male counterparts. That means something. Verse 13, greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Rufus's mama, we don't know her name. But you know that if you're going to call someone not related to you family, that implies something. He calls another person's mother his mother. What does that tell us? She must have cared for him, cared about him, engaged with him, helped him to process his ministry, consoled him. It's hard to do any of that silently. We could keep going. Mary, Julia, Nereus' sister. I think I've made the point. Paul acknowledged women. So in one letter, Paul says that women should be silent, but then he goes out of his way to name women in a patriarchal culture that likes to overlook them, or in Junia's case, completely wipe out their existence? Well, what's up with that? What, Paul, what's up with that? Were you in a bad mood? Like, were you having a bad day? Did he change his mind? Or could it be that in these one or two verses, he was addressing a specific woman. But in general, he uplifted women. Maybe he was bringing his own self to his writing, which again, he thought was an informal, an informal correspondence to a friend. The contradictions don't invalidate either of his writings. I just think it's further proof that we have to go back to the library for context, we have to go back to the library. Paul's overall actions, the way he lived his life, and the way he modeled for us to live our lives is not reflected in 1 Timothy being lifted off of the page out of context. It's just not. Interpretation is inevitable, but it requires some work. We have to do more reading, more asking questions, and choosing to not state our entire beliefs off of a phrase or a sentence that someone else has explained or interpreted for us. We have to get in scripture ourselves and ask God to show us what it means. And this brings me to our last point 
was that your faith was never meant to be built on these words. Your faith was never meant to be built on these words, but it's who the writings were about. Jesus is the common thread. This entire library is about the work of God through Jesus. If you want to start reading your Bible, open the Gospels. Start with Jesus. People say that the Bible is the Word of God, but the Word of God is Jesus. Jesus himself is the Word who tells us who God is and what he's doing. John 1 says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. And later, Luke tells us that Jesus himself took people through the writings of Moses and all the prophets. He took them through the scripture of the time and explained from all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's like, you guys, this is me. This has always been me. People have always been looking for me. Jesus is the word of God. The Bible has the word of God in it. It is not the word of God. And that is why our faith is not built on a book. But the library is his word. He is the author and he is the main character. He is the plot twist and he is the conclusion. John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the point of the library. This is why I want you to get in these pages. All of these books point to the work of God in humanity, and Jesus was God in humanity. So in light of all of this, what do we do, right? Where do we start? Well, we have to read it, and we have to live it out. One more verse for you, Romans 2.13. says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. We have to read it, and we have to live it, and we have to do both. We can't fully live out scriptures that we don't understand. And if we understand them, if we truly understand the love and the freedom and the peace and the assurance and the redemption and the forgiveness and the power that comes through these words, then our lives should reflect that. Unfortunately, too often, we only see one of these taking place. Now, I think some of you might have stayed right here a little bit too long. This is the children's Bible. My daughter just gasped because it's hers. <laughs> Some of you have stayed right here for too long. You're like, I don't need to read the Bible. I know the basics. I know what it says. I got the stories. Do you? Do you know how many animals Noah took on the ark? Don't say two because not two. That flannel board did you wrong, okay? There are certain things that we learn. We hear stories when we're kids or when we very first come to, the fa come to faith at a basic level because that's what we can handle. But it is time for some of us to move past this. It's time for some of us to move past stories being read to us and to own our faith for ourselves. You have to dig in. You have to ask questions. And you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of it all unraveling. Because again, remember, your faith is not built on this book. It's not built on sentence 
structure. In case you've heard otherwise, you can bring your questions and your doubts and your humanity to God, and it does not make him mad. It does not make him upset that you don't know enough things or that you haven't figured it out yet or that you're not good enough or you're not spiritual enough. None of that is true. God just wants you to engage with him. And he wants you to bring your whole humanity and your whole self when you do it. And here at Mosaic, we are also so okay with your questions. We will, we will walk with you. We will talk with you. We will do our best to help you find some clarity or we will just sit in the library with you until you're ready to go back to the shelf again. But I encourage you to see if it's time to move. And some of you have stayed in the library for too long. You have knowledge, but no application, and it's time for you to get up and to go out. See, you have skimmed stories, and maybe you only know verses out of context. Maybe you don't understand the meaning behind any of them. You might have accidentally even held tightly to the wrong things or argued about things that don't really matter because that's all you knew of Scripture and of the Bible. Let's stop making a mess of the original meanings all while doing nothing about it. We have to internalize what this says. And friends, reciting scripture, posting it on your Facebook page, that's not what I mean. That's not living it out. If you live out the concepts that are in this book, you will not have to prove your righteousness by telling people all of the things that you've committed to memory. That is not what it's about. We have to live out what it says. Romans told us it wasn't the believers who changed the world. There are plenty of people that believed in Jesus and believed what he was about that are not listed here. It wasn't the believers who changed the world. It was the doers. It was the church planters. It was the ones who put action behind their faith that went out and lived that life. You are the only Bible that some people will read. What is the message that people are taking away? Are they, are they reading your life and coming away with love and freedom and acceptance and a better understanding of the heart of God? Or are they reading your life and just finding messy, divisive, critical, confusing pages that they never want to pick up again? If you are the Bible, then together as the church, we get to be the library. We get to come together with our different languages and cultures and translations and interpretations, and we get to go out and show the world who God is. But we have to know him ourselves first. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are the same today as you were all those years ago. God, we thank you that you speak to us just like you spoke to the original biblical authors. God, we pray that you would help us to hear your voice clearly. God, that you would give us the courage to dig in deeper and to know what it is that you want to say to us. God, that we would have the courage to face what we always thought was true and to find out if it really is or if maybe an accident, God, we have learned it wrong. God, thank you that you speak to us, that you 
do provide comfort and wisdom and direction and life in these pages. God, we thank you for Jesus. God, that you came down into humanity to accept our humanity and to give us permission to live fully into ours as we connect with you and chase after you. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.